You can subscribe and get early access to these shows by going to truthjihad.com and clicking on the subscribe at Substack button. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think the, the most important, the most compelling was, uh, was 9-11 itself. Welcome to Truth Jihad Radio Live. I'm Kevin Barrett, broadcasting from an undisclosed location deep in the woods of western Wisconsin. Hello. Bringing on guests, ah, like, like Ellen Brown, I think I hear Ellen's voice, <laughs> uh, who have all kinds of interesting things to say that go, tend to go outside of the mainstream box. And, uh, before I get into it with Ellen, uh, just let me quickly sketch out the show for today. And uh, of course, you can listen to all of these shows early. Uh, if you missed the live show, you can catch it on Substack and you can subscribe to my Substack by going to truthjihad.com, clicking on the subscribe at Substack link. And then it goes up at No Lies Radio and the UNS Review. That's UNZ.com. All right. The final guest tonight, the last half hour of the show, is Henry Mako talking about Russia versus the West, men versus femmes. He says the Russians are real men and the West are a bunch of feminized wimps. Whoa. Okay. That's definitely pretty controversial. We also have Gijin Palya at the beginning of the second hour uh, with his epitaph for Madeleine Albright comparing the uh, thousands of civilian casualties in Ukraine to the Millions? No, hundreds of millions of deaths from violence and post-deprivation through U.S. hegemony, subversion, sanctioning, robbing, bombing, invasion, and devastation of non-European countries over the past 70 years. So he says that black, brown, and non-European lives matter. We have three guests tonight who have very different worldviews, areas of expertise, and so on. Let's start with our first-hour guest, Ellen Brown, one of the leading experts on monetary Issues, and she just published The Coming Global Financial Revolution. Russia is following the American playbook. And unlike some folks, like Michael Hudson and others, Ellen doesn't think that we will necessarily be utterly and completely permanently devastated if the dollar crumbles and stops being global reserve currency. So let's get that view and let's talk to Ellen. Hey, welcome, (laughs) Ellen. How's it going? Uh, thanks. Good. How's it going with you? It's going okay. I'm, it's, uh, I think we've completed one re- week of Ramadan now, and I'll be uh-huh. breaking the fast in half an hour. So if you wow. hear uh, drooling, slobbering, uh, gnashing of teeth, or <laughs> that sort of thing, you know what's up. Uh, <laughs> so, right. yeah. So, Ellen, I, I love talking with you in part because sometimes we, we go off script and talk about weird stuff like UFOs. You know, Did you see that Pentagon UFO report that says that, People who've had contact with UFOs have had all sorts of bad physical effects, radiation effects, and unwanted pregnancies, and this and that. Uh, no, unwanted pregnancies. Would these be like hybrids? <laughs> That's the implication. That's the implication, yes. Mm. Yeah, that just came out a couple of days ago. So. Yeah, well, I'm not one of those. I just read about this stuff. You don't have any everything, hybrid kids? Everything I know is what I read or what I see on the Internet. 
Yeah, same here, actually. I, uh, all I know is something weird is going on with UFOs, but I'm not sure what that is. Um, but I, I have higher confidence in your analysis of monetary <laughs> issues. <laughs> all right. So let, let's get into I'll it. So, so are, are we at a turning point in history right now? Is the reserve currency petrodollar about to crumble? And if so, why? And then how will that play out? Uh, take it away, Ellen. Well, I would, I mean, you know, I can't predict, but it looks to me like um, it's no longer going to be the sole reserve currency. I mean, that's pretty certain, and half the world, actually more than half the world, may be t- uh, going into the other camp, which would be, of course, Russia and China and India are the big players, and uh, China and India have... Um, declined to go along with the sanctions, so they're considered friendly countries to Russia, along with, um, well, I think that Russia has put like 48 countries in the unfriendly category, but still there's more are friendly than unfriendly, so they're allowed to trade. We're only allowed to trade in rubles or to buy in rubles for they're currently their gas, but uh, the threat is that they'll add all their other products as well. Uh, and they do make a lot of products that we really need. Um, so anyway, <laughs> I don't know where you want me to take this. Well, yeah, okay. Uh, so, so, yeah. so if if Russia forces um, all the unfriendly countries to buy stuff in rubles, uh, how does that change things? Yeah. Well, the we did it. Uh, you know, they're really just following what we did in in the 1970s when um, Nixon took the. You know, the dollar was backed by gold uh, domestically and internationally until 1933, and then Roosevelt took the dollar off the um, off the gold standard domestically. But it was still uh, inter countries could still cash in their dollars for gold. And then in 1969, Richard Nixon said <laughs> we were – well, that was after the Vietnam War and the – or during the Vietnam War and um, the um, um, Johnson's – Lyndon Johnson's Guns and Butter Great Society. So we were spending a lot of money domestically and in these wars. And uh, Charles de Gaulle, who was president of France – could see that we were going to run out of money, and so he pulled his uh, – cashed in his dollars for gold, and then I think Italy did the same, and the U.K. was threatening to do it. Or I um, <clears throat> I think de Gaulle cashed in like half of it, and he was going to cash in the rest. And Nixon said, uh, you know, <laughs> we were going to run out of gold, so close the gold window, and uh, the dollar immediately collapsed on global – uh, markets, as did the ruble after uh, we imposed sanctions, so a very similar trajectory. And then to prop up the dollar, Kissinger and Nixon made a deal with the OPEC nations that they would sell their oil only in dollars and they would put their dollars in our banks, well, in uh, Wall Street and London banks, uh, City of London banks. And uh, Apparently, there was also a deal that um, apparently Kissinger said we will we will we are planning to quadruple the price of oil, so you will become very rich, and that actually did happen. 
with this um, short war in the Middle East. So that implies that that war was kind of ginned up by uh, Kissinger. Yes, like <laughs> as if, yeah, something we're pretty good at actually. Um, <clears throat> so and that deal held until 2000 when Saddam Hussein broke the deal by um, uh, selling his oil in euros. And uh, I think there were other efforts to break the deal. And then um, uh, Gaddafi in Libya did the same, and he was attempting to uh, form all the African nations into a, their own monetary system that of the IMF and the World Bank and uh, would be gold-backed, so they would have their own currency. And, of course, we know what happened to both of them, Saddam Hussein and um, Gaddafi. They were murdered, and uh, their countries were destroyed. And uh, actually, Gaddafi was doing more than that. He, he had that uh, great man-made river project where he had turned the desert in turned the deserts green, and he was going to show the other countries in Africa how to do that as well. So anyway, <laughs> we couldn't have that. So <clears throat> so other countries have tried to break the system, but they haven't been able to do it. But we've never had a major, um, a, you know, a major nation take take us on, and now now we have, which is Russia, and so. In fact, what they're doing is actually more <laughs> – well, we backed our oil with other countries' gold, but Russia is backing their gas for the moment and probably their oil uh, with their own uh, – sorry, backing the ruble with their own gas and their own oil, presumably, and uh, they're also talking about a gold-backed currency that – uh, Russia and India, uh, China are um, talking about forming their own monetary system that would what would have its own currency, which would be um, <clears throat> backed by all the the currencies of the member members of this um, union. So I think it's the Eurasian Economic Union. Which includes um, Russia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Belarus, Armenia, <laughs> other Eurasian nations, the Belt and Road nations, and more probably. Maybe, maybe even Pakistan if the CIA doesn't bump off uh, Ken. <laughs> yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah, so there, so it could be a whole new whole new design that we're looking at, a whole new global monetary system. But what will happen to our monetary system? I don't think they can dislodge the dollar from there. It's just so in there, you know, there's this whole euro dollar system, which if you ask me is corrupt. I mean, it wouldn't hurt if we got rid of the euro dollar system. Um, but well, I'm sorry, so I'm sorry. What, what, is the, what is the euro dollar system? Oh, uh, that's really interesting. I thought I would, might write about that if I can get my own head around it. In Europe, they issue dollars, and they don't have the dollars. You know, all banks, it's known that the way where money actually gets into the economy is through banks. They just write it, 
if you take a loan out at a bank, they just write the sum into your uh, account. So they're basically allowed to counterfeit. Yes, exactly. They can, and in Europe, they're not. The uh, Federal Reserve has no control over them, so they can do this. They, they do it for the derivatives market, and they do it to manipulate the gold price and in various nefarious things that it, that it might be good to get rid of. Uh, and I don't know. I've been listening to Tom Luongo. I don't know if you know him, but his he argues that the Federal Reserve is breaking from the central banks of Europe, that they are the World Economic Forum, Great Reset people. And, you know, it's basically the old European money, if you, you could trace it back to the, you know, the bankers of whatever, the 17th century or so. And they've been amassing... Uh, interest or doing this sort of parasitic system where they create money and they don't create the interest and so they always take back more than they put out there or they create it as credit which I actually think is a good system I mean we don't want to get rid of that you need credit but the parasitic part is obviously bad or if you if you want to um, do it for profit, the profit should go back to the people, which is public banking, which is <laughs> my area of expertise. But anyway, so so that British, it's called, it was called the British system versus the American system by um, Henry Clay in the 19th century and then Henry Carey, who was um, <clears throat> Abraham Lincoln's uh, economic advisors. So what they were opposing was the British system was this colonial system of ex- exploitation. So originally they did it by war. Of course, they would actually go in and conquer these countries and make them colonies of the U- of England. But um, when the then the first the U.S. and then the other colonies broke away, then they continued to do it. Uh, financially. So um, one of our presidents said there are two ways to uh, conquer a nation. One is by war and the other is by debt. So that's what they're doing now is by debt, this whole usurious system where they pull back more money than they put or pull back more than they put out in the form of credit. So anyway, so they've been amassing money for the last at least 300 years, maybe 400 years, they've been amassing this interest. So clearly, they, whoever these old European families are, are the richest, <laughs> the richest families in the world, probably. The For- and, Fortune magazine doesn't seem to know that, though. They never have the Rothschilds as number one. No, they don't. They don't reveal their assets. <laughs> but so, so, and they own BlackRock. Well, anyway, some. Uh, unknown, very wealthy families own Vanguard, which owns BlackRock, or is the large—I think the largest investor in BlackRock, and vice versa. BlackRock is the largest investor in Vanguard. So, and they are, you know, control twenty-one trillion dollars worth of assets, and they've got this massive robot system that. Um, you know, all the investors want to to, to hone in on because it uh, can predict investments, et cetera. Anyway, so BlackRock and Vanguard are in poised to. Own they the they world. should merge and become Blackguard. 
Because they are a bunch of blackguards. <laughs> I think they, yeah, they are merged, actually. And, of course, Blackstone was the original, and Blackrock came from Blackstone. Yeah, well, what's this obsession with black rocks and black stones? As a Muslim, I kind of resent that because they seem to be referring to the Kaaba in Mecca, which is the direction that we pray. But I don't want to be praying towards these guys, that's for sure. <laughs> right. He's, he's blackguards. So, so the whole, you know, the Great Reset of uh, the World Economic Forum, the, they're notorious for that line, you will own nothing and you will be happy. Well, if we own nothing, who will own everything? And obviously the big money. <laughs> no, those poor, poor little rich guys. Look how miserable they'll be after they've taken every last cent of ours. Yeah. Yeah. So, we'll be happy. So they, yeah. So in Europe, so they are the European bankers, obviously. And they can create dollars on their books. All all banks just create the money they lend on their books. But then they have to, they're supposed to, it used to be they had a reserve currency. But even the U.S. is now, even the Fed is now eliminated. I mean, sorry, the, the reserve requirement. And But even the U.S. has now eliminated the reserve requirement as of, you know, recently due to covid and uh, the UK had eliminated it quite a while ago. Wait a so, minute! Wait a minute! It, it's it, it hasn't just been reduced; it's been completely eliminated. We have no we have no reserve requirement right now. Yeah, I mean wow. we have capital requirement, and that comes from the from the Bank for International Settlements. So that's a different thing. But the Fed has eliminated the reserve requirement, which means you can. They can banks can just write the money. You go to the bank to take out a loan. They just write the money into your account. They balance it with the mortgage or whatever you put up on the other side of the, uh, you know, put up to pay it back with or whatever equipment or whatever it is you you put up as collateral. So they they put that as an asset on one side of their books and they put the um, put your loan as a deposit on the other side of their books so that's a liability to them it's obviously an asset to you and then you when you spend it what they have to do is they have to come up with reserves but what they do is they borrow them so they can they can go they used to go to the fed funds market and borrow from each other very cheaply and that's the that's the interest rate that the federal reserve controls the fed funds rate it was 0.25%, like it was almost free. But the problem is that in 2008, when things collapsed, the problem was that the banks wouldn't lend to each other. They didn't trust each other because, you know, their things had started to fall apart, Lehman Brothers and all that. And, um, or I think it was, before that, it was Bear Stearns. And um, so, so then the repo market is another alternative, and that is where they tend to get their, get their money now but so in europe they can go to the repo market even if it's a 30-year loan i mean i'm trying to i'm not sure of this myself i'm trying to nail this down but it looks like they borrow at the repo market uh, and just keep rolling these loans over and the repo market uh, in well this is i'm getting way far afield but in 20 2000 uh, or 2019 in uh, September of 2019, when the repo market shot up to 10%, it was because the European banks were taking really dodgy collateral for their loans, and um, J.P. Morgan was the big um, counterparty in the repo market, and they just refused to lend to the European banks, and so did uh, some other big lenders and so the repo market the interest rate shot up and so the federal reserve 
I'm not really sure why the Federal Reserve feels compelled to protect the European banks, but they do. Maybe it's because they have swap line agreements with them. Anyway, so they stepped in and and um, put a floor on the repo market. So, and they, you know, they've been intervening in the repo market ever since. But as uh, Tom Luongo points out, they've they've they raise the well this is getting really complicated but anyway they've done things that have hurt the the european uh banks and the european you know the european central banks so the, so they're kind of pitted against the european central banks are driving toward this reset where the first they will all have central bank digital currencies trading with each other and then they'll merge into one central bank digital currency which will basically be the the IMF um the the IMF will issue it and ultimately it's you know under the Bank for International Settlements which is in Basel Switzerland um so anyway it's totally out of And will, will this be denominated in, in euros? Uh well if it's the um if it's the IMF the it, it's uh <laughs> I'm not thinking of the word. Um no, it's not Euros, but uh, I'm not thinking what it is the issue, but sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's that's interesting because I know some interpretations of the Ukraine war uh, hold that it's not just a US or NATO war on Russia. And according to many people, including myself, NATO is a euphemism for the U.S. occupation of Europe. Um, but it's also a U.S. war on Europe of, of plunder. Michael Hudson has said this, that it's really about propping up the dollar and the U.S. economy uh, by impoverishing Europe, forcing Europe to buy American uh, liquid gas. So there may be some sort of tension there, or there should be, if the Europeans were standing up for their own people, uh, you know, between the American side and the European side. And so maybe this... Uh, kind of financial tension that you're talking about that Tom Luongo has written about is related to that. Yeah, well, and his argument, he well, did, you know, there was was it a year ago or more than that that um, uh, Jerome Powell, Christine Lagarde was was saying that all the central banks had to impose on their banks the requirement they that they not lend to oil companies. I mean, it was basically the Green New Deal. And um, uh, Jerome Powell said, I mean, he just refused to do it. He said, well, we that's not really our area. That's thats really fiscal policy, and, and we're supposed to – we're limited to, to monetary policy. And she got all upset and said, no, you have to do it. Um, so, so that was the first break. And then uh, Jerome Powell raised – uh, raised the interest rate, I think, on the repo market. Yeah, I raised the interest rate just by up to 0.5%. But what it did was it pulled a lot of money out of Europe into the U.S. because we had a better repo rate than they had there. And um, and so that hurt their banks. So, and hmm. I don't know. <laughs> there are other, other signs that he's – oh, they ha- we haven't moved – quickly on a central bank digital currency. I used to be I've actually written in favor of central bank digital currencies. That I mean there it's like a it's a tool, you know, any tool is like a hammer. You can kill somebody with it or you can build a house with it. Um it could be good if we could get it in the hands of the people and have it serve the people, but 
we don't want the sort of um, digital currency where they can cut you off if you're a political dissident or you say something they don't like or whatever, uh, which we're seeing that now. And so people people just aren't trusting banks at all. Or it's not the bank's fault, of course. It's the uh, it's the government that's requiring these banks to to cut people off, like like the truckers, you know, whose accounts were closed, or even people that made donations to the truckers. Which but see, <laughs> they, they didn't need any any so-called uh, central bank digital currency to do that. And that leads to my question of Good what's point. the yeah. difference between a central bank digital currency and what we have now, since the vast majority of currency is, of course, created digitally and it never gets printed onto green paper or whatever color of the paper they're using over in Europe. Uh, so what's the difference between the digital currency that we have now and the central bank digital currency that you're talking about? Well, the concern is that it's programmable or would be programmable. So, so it'd be kind of like a food stamps or something. You can use it for certain things or you're limited to, you know, you, you can only have X amount of this type of food this week and you've already had it. <laughs> you know, you've already, so, or you can only travel a certain distance and if you try to go farther your your card or your, i guess your your card wouldn't work anyway i don't know about your card mm. I don't know how so you couldn't you couldn't like swap you know your your uh whatever dollars they are you know your your entertainment dollars for somebody else's gasoline dollars so it's all it's all it would all be like each individual unit of the digital currency would be totally sort of tracked, traced, and controlled by the central authority. And if that's the case, how could that be a, a useful tool like a hammer to build a house? That sounds like just a hammer for killing people and surveilling people. Okay, well. <laughs> I mean, what, what's, what would be the good side of it? But the argument is, you know, among uh, the 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 conspiracy argument is that that's what the vaccines are for, that they can control. It's the whole um, mark of the beast where you won't be able to buy or sell unless you hold your wrist out or whatever, you know, and the, and that'll trigger the machine that lets you, lets you buy and sell. I mean, it's totally personal, personal. Yeah, it was getting that way when I was in San Francisco for the 9-11 Truth Film Festival last year. I had to show a fake, rather a parody, I should say, a parody vaccine card to get into uh, cafes and restaurants and such. Uh, the next step, I guess, would be to tattoo the card onto your wrist or something, uh, but or, or put it on a microchip. Uh, yeah, but, well, but, but again, that's yeah. the, supposedly the plan, microchips. Yeah, right. But I'm still confused a little bit about the difference. But okay, so so the digital currency we have now obviously is not programmable, trackable, traceable, and controllable. It's just dollars. It's you just exchange it for cash or what have you, or whatever you want to exchange it for. And one unit is one unit, whether you're buying gasoline or food or whatever. And one unit is one unit, whether it's quote-unquote mine, whether I hand it to you and now it's quote-unquote yours, uh, it's totally exchangeable freely. Nobody can see it being exchanged. So if this new central bank currency differs from the current digital currency in being trackable and traceable and controllable, which seems to be what you're suggesting, I don't see what the good side of that could possibly be. No, well, we don't want something that's um, – the good side of a central bank digital currency would be that um, you could issue it where it was needed. You know, you could it could be issued – it would be basically like, like uh, Lincoln's greenbacks, but 
you could get it right to the people. When they were trying to do those um, PPP payments, apparently it was very difficult for the banks. I mean, it turned out to be a big mess trying to get payments to the people properly, assuming that's what you want to do. But there is the issue, the question whether we even want to, to have a universal basic income because they're, first they're going to take away the jobs and give them to robots, and then we'll get our universal basic income in order to keep everybody in compliance. So I agree. There, there are a lot of – at the moment, I wouldn't endorse it. I mean, not the way it's going for sure. But, you so know, so the, the, the difference – the difference between the, this kind of central bank digital currency that you're talking about versus the already digital currency that we have now is that the central bank just issues it directly. Is that it? Well, there, to, there, there's actually a bill in Congress, I think, to that effect, that it would not be issued by the Federal Reserve. It would be issued by the Treasury. So it would be issued directly. Yes. Well, that, that sounds good. Yeah, well, that so you could – distribute things fairly, you know, like the things we know we need, like medical and food and or just universal basic income to spend it the way you need to or some sort of housing thing or, you know, credits for different things. You could do it all by computer and and have it all run smoothly, but it is very dangerous. I I would have to agree, so (laughs) I don't promote it anymore. I'm backing off hmm. on that. I'll just say on that, uh, you know, Aaron Russo in 2005 did a mo- did a movie. Uh, what was it? I've forgotten the name of it. But anyway, um, where he, he discussed having talked to one of the Rockefellers. I forget was it Melvin? Was it, was it Nick Rockefeller? Maybe. Oh, Nick okay. Or yeah, that sounds better. Guys. Nicholas. Yeah, um, and he. Um, yeah, so you know the story. <laughs> so so he asked Nick Rockefeller, so what's the point of – oh, th- so this was part of the uh, Council on Foreign Relations, I think, that they were trying to, to get Aaron Russo to join. And Aaron Russo said, well, what's the point of all this? And, yeah, well, yeah. and, and let's remind people that, that he said that after uh, the Rockefeller had told him basically that 9-11 was coming. And so now uh, Aaron Russo was kind of devastated. He said, why are you doing all this? Yeah, what's the point? Oh yeah, no, I didn't realize that. I knew the movie was made in 2005, so they, he must have been, he must have been. Yeah, yeah no, he, he was he was recounting so, an earlier conversation that he had yeah, like okay. the year before 9/11, and that this Rockefeller had had foreknowledge uh-huh. of 9/11. Friend, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and so now the, and <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> sorry. So what he said was that uh, well, the goal is we'll get everybody chipped, and then if they get out of line or whatever would just turn off their money and uh, through their chip and that's how everybody will be controlled and then i also saw a whistleblower in 2010 it was on project camelot and he was a big banker from uh city of london and he was a mason and he got invited to a meeting and he thought he was invited to the meeting by mistake because it was it was a higher level meeting than he normally was in, was um, had access to, and they were talking about they were behind schedule and they were quite concerned. And the schedule was that first China would catch a cold, meaning a virus, and that that would spread, and that um, then they would have a limited nuclear war where Israel and Iran would get into a war, and we would come in 
to the on the side of Israel and China would come in on the side of Iran and then we would have a major nuclear war and the goal was to wipe out I think 80% of the population something like that and they were aiming for they were concerned about some major catastrophe that was predicted I don't know like <laughs> the pole changes or something like that I mean, they didn't say what the catastrophe was, but that's why they were, that's where they were worried about this schedule. And um, what got me was that, I mean, I heard this long before before we had the virus and it, the whole idea that China would catch a cold, China would, that they would have a virus that would wipe out um, a large part of the Chinese population was, seemed to me very uh, uncanny. Yeah, that's true. Although, if I they mean, were you trying, you can still find that it's on Project Camelot 2010. Huh. I think it was called the Anglo, the Anglo-Saxon Mission was the name of it, and you know, Anglo-Saxon would be sort of the the British system of banking, the those right. same old European bankers, whoever they are. Interesting. Well, it sounds like their plan may have been modified a little bit because right now the the Iran. Israel nuclear war seems to be on hold, and they could just go straight to the big war uh, between the U.S. and Russia. And it seems like they're really uh, setting things up for that right now. Uh, yeah, and you've probably seen that Deagle I don't thing where predicting that something like eighty percent of the population was going to get wiped out. I hope that. Yeah, well, that true, yeah, but... but that was for the U.S. And so. That would uh, that would indicate somehow some. You know, I don't think Russia lost that much population in the Deagle prediction, but I, I still haven't figured out really who this Deagle is anyway. In, in no, I haven't either. Yeah, but anyway, yeah. that somebody seems to think that that's somebody's goal. So with any luck, Russia stepping in and breaking the the whole dollar cycle. It seems to me that they probably. I mean, they can't pull it off if they don't have Russia and China enlisted in their plans. Yeah. Well, you know, when you compare how the U.S. propped up the petrodollar um, under Kissinger by forcing the Saudis and the, and the Gulf Arabs to sell oil in dollars and, then of course, giving them a carrot as well as the stick by making them fabulously rich, by making the price go way up, by launching that 1973 war, uh so, as you said, the Americans pumped up the petrodollar using somebody else's oil, whereas the Russians are pumping up the petro ruble, or some are maybe calling it what the the gas ruble, uh, by using their own energy resources, which does seem a little bit more legitimate. And it also yeah, well, and it means they don't have to keep going to war in the Middle East in order to protect <laughs> protect their oil. It's their own yeah, that's oil. one advantage. And, and also it kind of indicates that the system that's being built might be a different kind of system. The American petrodollar system was all about sustaining the petrodollar empire by allowing the U.S. to print all that money that it could use to build military installations all over the planet and run by far the planet's biggest military budget, spending as much as the next eight or ten countries combined every year. That's what it was really about, was was building an empire. And the Russian system, the, this Russian uh, petro-ruble or gas-ruble running on only Russian gas uh, seems to be about building a system that's no longer uh, imperial, but rather a community 
of relatively sovereign and equal nations, which is what the Russians say they want, uh, a, a new multipolar order. And I wonder if you would agree that that's true and that the uh, the Russian aspiration to, for a multipolar world is a lot more uh, ethically and morally defensible than the American aspiration for a unipolar one. Yeah, I would. And it does seem one problem with the current system is that it's easy for big money to go in there and trash um, currencies like happened in, you know, with the Asian crisis of the late 90s or I mean, they've done it to different countries. Um, spe- speculators go in and sell short, et cetera. But so you need some reference for the value of your of your currency, and I, I actually have written about that too. But uh, so you need something that's stable as the reference. So what they're talking about with this new system would be that the the reference would be a basket of commodities or things that people use along with these currencies that are that are part of the system so something that stays stable so i think that's definitely a better you know if you have some way of fixing the value it can't just be against gold because we've done that already and it didn't work but um or you know it doesn't it your currency doesn't need to be backed by that thing in the sense that you're going to spend those or you're you're able to cash it in for those commodities on demand like go to the bank and say I want my gold but it just means you 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 figure out what that pot of stuff is worth in your country in your currency and then compare it to what it's worth to in all the other countries or what it would take to buy that stuff in all the other countries. And since everybody already um, keeps track of things like the um, the consumer price index, that, that wouldn't actually be impossible to do today because you've got all this, you know, digital data out there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think we're coming into the possibility of a better system. <laughs> um, Edgar Casey said, if you want to get into woo-woo stuff, um, Edgar Casey, the sleeping prophet, prophet, you know, of the 1920s, he mm-hmm. was, um, he did all these amazing cures where he would, he would go into a trance and he would find out what was wrong with the person and tell them what to do and they would get cured. Um, he said that Russia was going to save, save the day right about, right around now by, you know, with a, with a more stable system. That's interesting. Russia also figured in the uh, Fatima uh, prophecies as well, although maybe in a slightly more unsettling way. But, yeah, these kinds of of, of prophecies about, you know, end time scenarios with potential disasters and, you know, huge wars, possible nuclear wars killing most of the people around, as well as prophecies of a better world. It's uh, it's interesting to try to think about. How, how they, you know, how does it all, how does that all fit together? Um, yeah, I, I hadn't, you know, I've, I've yeah, read. What, Edgar, what prophecies were, what, what were those prophecies? Well, you know, of course, the uh, well-known sort of Armageddon prophecies about the, uh, you know, the, that war, the Christians, and I guess uh, Jews as well have some of that. And, you know, in Islam, we have prophecies of the Melhama, which Sheikh Imran Hussein talks about being, you know, the Melhama being the kind of last really big war that kills the majority of the population, or so he thinks anyway. Um, 
And uh, in, in a lot of these, uh, including and Russia, Russia is the bad guy in this. Project. No, Russia's the good guy, according to Shafer oh, Manosian. Yeah, okay. Yeah, he, he, he says he says the uh, Western world is Gog and Magog, or Jews, Jews and Yajuj in, in the Islamic version. Um, and uh, he sees the, uh, the the usury empire of the West as you know being on the side of of the Shaitan Al Dabilah, and uh, seems to think that Russia is returning to Christianity, which of course. In, in Islam is a good thing. It's kind of weird how the Christians, a lot of Christians don't like Islam very much, but Muslims by and large don't have much of a problem with Christianity per se, or at least they um, uh, consider them people of the book and so on and so forth. So anyway, anyway long story short is that the Imran Hussein, the Muslim world's leading eschatologist, does uh, sort of foresee a, a big war from which he thinks Russia will emerge victorious. So I guess maybe that could explain the Deagle prophecy of the Americans being wiped out. Um, I, I saw that yeah, the Russians. That's interesting. Uh, I mean, I hope that's not true. But <laughs> yeah, I, I, I kind of do, too. Although, frankly, I, sometimes I think the Americans deserve it. <laughs> yeah, well, I got a lot of pushback on my that last article I did. I got hundreds of comments on it, but the pushback sort of art, pushback were not like you're wrong in this or that. It was like, no, the Americans don't deserve to. Oh, well, so the reason I argued that, um, that, or, you know, I was just citing other, other authorities, but like Lynn Alden for one is very good. And she, she, or other people have said that uh, being global reserve currency is not really an exorbitant privilege. It starts out as an exorbitant privilege, but in the end, it's an exorbitant burden. And the reason is you've got to, you always have to go into deficit because you, all the other countries need your dollars. And so, so they're, you know, they're always just like, just like those, European banks that came for dollars during the 2008-2009 crisis. So we've got this $30 trillion debt built up that there's no way to pay it off, and we just have to keep paying interest. And um, so that's one way. And then the other thing is that because we could get cheap, or because our big companies could get cheaper labor abroad, that our own laborers were out of a job. And so now we will be forced, just like the Russians will be, are being forced to developing our, to develop our own internal industries. And that was what was called the American system versus the, the British system back in the 19th century. The American system consisted of internal development, um, tariffs to protect your, your young, your young companies so they can grow and um, a central bank or a national bank that issues sovereign credit. So you're issuing your own money and your own credit and you, you fund your development with that national uh, credit. And that's what rushes. It looks like they're going that way. It looks like they're, well, there's a big controversy over their central bank and, uh, Sergio Glazyev, who's uh, leading the charge for monetary reform in Russia uh, and is also uh, the head of this whole group uh, trying to put together a new monetary system. Uh, he's been opposed to the central bank for a long time. He says it's a, Russia, or a Western tool. And um, so what they need to do is 
basically what Alexander Hamilton did and what Abraham Lincoln did and Roosevelt did, form their own banking system that issues their own credit, develop. They've got plenty of resources. You know, they just need to have the money to get in there and develop them. Well, what is money? It's just credit. I mean, all our money today is just credit issued by banks. So it's credit. The the problem is that most of our credit goes to big uh, speculative, derivative, you know, things that are not really serving the economy. But if you had control of that credit so that it would go if we had a national infrastructure bank, which I'm highly in favor of, and there's a, a bill bill in Congress right now for a national infrastructure bank that would issue credit specifically for all that infrastructure that we need. You put workers to work on it, and then they build the thing, and the proceeds from whatever you built go back and pay back the loan. Um, so, for example, you build high-speed rail, and then they the um, fees from the that the passengers pay go back and pay off the loan and and that's the way the whole system should work you put the credit out there you build something useful productive and then the the money comes back so it's not inflationary you're not just pumping money out there to wealthy people or you know to the people that at the top who get richer and richer is unfortunately is pretty much how it's going right now so you need some regulation on on that tool of money printing. But money printing itself is not a bad thing. I mean, we need the money. We need the we need the credit in order to mode it to pay for getting things done, the workers and materials that we need for all the stuff that we need out there. And uh, I guess the modern monetary theory people are sort of putting out just a truism by saying that well, yeah, you can just print as much money as you want up until the point that it becomes inflationary. But where that point is, is really, you know, where the devil is in the details. And your argument that, say, Michael Hudson is maybe not entirely right when he seems to indicate that basically the having the dollar as the global reserve currency, creating this huge demand for dollars, has allowed the U.S. to print a lot more dollars than it otherwise would be able to without uh, inflation eating away at their value. And therefore, it's essentially been a counterfeiting racket, allowing the masters of the U.S. money supply to uh, print up all of this useless green paper or digital uh, electrons that can then be exchanged for real goods and services, such as all that it takes to build military bases all over the planet, to build weapons, and so on and so forth. So that seems like that's the exorbitant privilege. I understand that. I don't quite understand how it ever becomes something, you know, a problem to have that ability to print way, way, way more money than everybody else can. Well, it would, if in fact we were just printing the money and buying stuff, then I would, I would agree. But, but the way our system is right now, the treasury can't just print money and spend it. They have to borrow the money. That's the way, you know, that's in the rules. So, so they issue bonds and then that um you know put it on and they have to put it on the open market and the federal reserve may or may not buy the bonds but um and so they issue the bonds spend the money for products abroad and then those countries who don't really need our products i mean they're not spending them back for products they take that money, those dollars, and they buy our bonds with them. So 
the problem is you keep you do that for 50 years as we as we have done as a 50 years yeah 50 years um then you've got a huge federal debt and there's no way to pay it off and uh, if those countries decide they don't want your bonds anymore and they start dumping them that's obviously going to drive the interest rate up and so i've seen projections that at the rate we're going we're going to be paying like half of our of our income tax is just going to go to interest and who's going to get this interest wealthy bondholders it's not going to be it's not going like the bank of north dakota they do charge interest and they do have some profit but it's very you know they make cheap loans like two or three percent and that the profits go back to the government and are used for things that serve the people but the bondholders are not the government they um, well, they are pension funds, which is us, but largely, you know, they're just wealthy investors that buy these bonds or the Chinese. If the, the Chinese have not been buying our bonds, basically, they're lately they're they're dumping them. So it, the, ideally, I would say the Federal Reserve should buy them. They should buy them all. And because what happens when the Fed buys them is that they return the interest to uh, the Treasury. So it basically is interest-free credit. I'm, I'm, I think that would work, and that, but that would be what you call a national bank, and not that's not part of the the central bank system. You know, the Bank for International Settlements. Uh, you, I'm probably told the story before, but it, uh, the Bank of Canada used to just issue credit and build all sorts of stuff, and that worked really well until the 1970s when they joined the Bank for International Settlements. And the the rule of the of the BIS is that you're not supposed to issue your own money because that would be inflationary. You're supposed, you're supposed to maintain the stability of the currency, which is defined as not inflating the money supply because the theory is that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, which I would disagree with. It's, you know, it's the balance between money and goods and if you can get your goods up to balance your money you're not going to have inflation but anyway that's the rule and so they're not allowed to print and that's the same thing in Russia where um Sergio Glazia was objecting that uh, their central bank was a tool of the west and it was preventing them from issuing the credit they need to to develop why why can't they issue the credit because they're not supposed to be pr- printing money <laughs> so in other words it's, the system could be changed it could be fixed to work but obviously we don't want the government to have the tool to just print money without some controls on it it's got to go in the right places and it is very risky business i mean even I mean, you could just picture if if we change the rule and say, okay, we're going to let the Treasury print the money we need, and and then you get some Congress in there that decides we need, I don't know, <laughs> you know, we need to do something that the rest of the people don't necessarily agree with. We have a political system, a political problem where our government does not really represent the people or certainly most people think they aren't being represented i don't know about most but at least half the people think they aren't being represented so somehow we need to fix a political system but if we could get a government in there that actually was working for us and not for the big corporations that are that are keeping them in office then the, the there are you know, it's possible to make the system work you could envision a system that worked but 
current under current the, the way it's designed right now. <laughs> anyway, oh sorry, but I, I guess I lost the thread of thread there. That the problem with being uh, the global reserve currency is that over after fifty years, you've got this giant debt. You've lost your workers. You don't have your own internal development. And then you, what happened is just what's happening right now. The other countries have figured out what the game is, and they don't want to play anymore. So, so here we are stuck with no business, no industries anymore that are compet. I shouldn't say no, but you know we're not not competitive really with the rest of the world. And um, a thirty trillion dollar debt that's liable to have giant interest interest rate on it it's you know it's liable to take a huge amount of our taxes unless we change the rules in some way and so, and so I would say, to avoid the kind of catastrophe that some people are predicting will come with the end of the petrodollar system you're saying we do need to change the rules yeah for sure but and i imagine we will <laughs> so so you're actually kind of optimistic about the us ability to survive the end of the petrodollar system uh yes. <laughs> I mean it's just uh, why I don't know for sure. Uh, but it, you do have to break some eggs that whole thing that just like never let a an opportunity a crisis go to waste. That's their theory and they're destroying the global economy. This is what Tom Luanga thinks that they're purposely destroying our economy and the European economy so that they can have a the great reset. I mean to do a reset first you got to clear the board, you know, get all those pawns off there and then build, set the board back up again. Um so in order to how do we thwart that? I mean, I I don't think they can pull that off, and Tom Luongo doesn't think they can pull that off. So we we can also use this opportunity. I mean, the old system was pretty good. I mean, you can think back to your life 20 years ago or whatever, and it was pretty adequate. But we still had all kinds of things that were out of whack. I mean, the fact that we were going into all these countries and uh, militarily and uh, – Acting like the imperial aggressor was not a good thing. So, and don't don't forget the ri- the inequality has been rising so uh, steeply yeah. and you know exponentially. It seems right. So, so we need we also need to clear the board. We need a reset, but we need the opportunity to set those pawns back up in a way that serves the people rather than in a way that uh, captures the people. Well, uh, if you are. If you're betting that, that the U.S. will get it together and do that, I think you are uh, an incorrigible optimist, but I hope you're right. Uh, <laughs> well, thanks, Ellen Brown. It's always great to hear your thoughts, um, especially optimistic ones. We can use all the optimism we can get in this business. Uh, and, uh, I thought that was a very good article, really good, succinct uh, description of uh, the rise and fall of the petrodollar. So keep up the great work. Uh, thank you. Uh, okay. I'm a writer, better writer than speaker, but I hope I express all that. <laughs> well, well, the whole okay, point great of, to, of great it, to talk it, to you. Yeah, yeah, you too. It's, it's actually it's, it's always good to hear the writers who write, and then you know we can kind of get a sense of their personalities. And we all know that it, you know the coherence is going to be better when you're writing than when you're speaking. But uh, I really enjoy talking with you, Ellen. So, oh, likewise. Okay. okay. Bye. Bye. That's Ellen Brown. Uh, she's the author of Web of Debt, a huge bestseller. And lots of other good stuff as well. Kevin Bear here back next hour with Gidgen, Palia, and Henry McCoe. This is Revolution Radio.
premiere free speech at Netflix. Please go to Revolution Radio and find a way to be right back.